Welcome to a special um, extra edition of Crestonia. I'm S. Garlic. Uh, no Marys Hellman this time, but we do have Carolina Einger, um, who is currently a cybersecurity expert for the company Independent Diplomats. Uh, before that, uh, Carolina was the head of so Estonian cybersecurity policy for the Ministry of Economic Affairs and Communications for Estonia. Uh, and also a self-employed cybersecurity consultant. So the perfect person to guide us through uh, what will be ultimately uh, some very stupid basic questions about uh, cybersecurity and why it works, but also um, e-voting or i-voting, as I believe we're meant to call it, and why it works. Um, Carolina, first of all, where does this podcast find you? Hi there. I'm based in Milton Keynes outside London at the moment. So I divide my time between Estonia and the UK. But at the moment, I'm in the UK. I, I genuinely can't think of a better place to be than, than MK. Do you do you wave at the concrete cows every day? I do. There's also a concrete dinosaur on my way uh, to the kids' school. So I really can't complain. It's a great place to live. We will, we will be talking about Ekra later on. But uh, um, <laughs> anyway, that's enough jokes. Um, so... Uh, Carolina, thank you so much for uh, joining the podcast. And uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you was because there was there was so much discussion around e-voting and around how open it may or may not be to corruption from from people who um, probably don't know whether they need to update the antivirus on their PC or not. And um, a, a little bit like how uh, COVID-19 led to everyone becoming an, an becoming an uh, antiviral expert overnight. I, I felt that the same thing was happening with uh, e-voting. First of all, let's get the terminology right, because I called it e-voting and you said i-voting. So explain that for everyone. Sure. So the the really sort of in 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 essence, it's it's just about branding, isn't it? The Estonians started voting online before other countries did um, or built any technical systems into their voting processes. And then suddenly we realized that many countries who were trialing various unsafe technical practices as part of their voting suddenly started referring to their systems as e-voting. And, and there was a concern that it's, it gets confusing and it, it, and it might not... Um, uh, it might sort of confuse people discussing Estonian systems. So there was a push to start referring to the Estonian process of voting online as i-voting. But really, in essence, you know, it's just about branding. Right. So um, for the purposes of uh, consistency with what we've seen in Estonian journalism, I'm going to stick to e-voting for this. I hope you don't mind. That's great, of course. So um, the... It seems to me that uh, the uh, challenge which was thrown out of the, the Estonian Supreme Court uh, was a purely political one. But um, from the point of view of a cybersecurity expert, uh, I, I think let's start from the beginning. How does the Estonian version of e-voting actually work? Sure, I'll, I'll actually challenge you slightly because there there have been complaints about e-voting before. Hmm. The centre party uh, realised, just as Ekra did this time, that it might be a great way to mobilise their voters against the ruling parties about 10 years ago. And they were, they were aided by some people who, I, I guess, were just after the fame, but, but sort of came up with sort of very ludicrous claims about Estonian e-voting that the centre party really attached themselves to. But in the same way, it was proven to them again and again that 
uh, there is no basis for for those claims and and soon enough they gave up on it when they realized that undermining Estonian democracy is not something that they want to be engaged in quite so actively but now it's Ekra's turn to le- learn the same basic truths about how e-voting works and and I'm I'm sort of very happy to to talk through how the process works again. They actually can see how all of the process works and it's throughout sort of the the voting period the the mechanics of e-voting are actually very much open to scrutiny to various party officials. The cryptography behind it is obviously very complicated but the technology itself has been made publicly available. It's available on GitHub which is a repository for, for code so people can go in and review. They can even build their own voting applications if they want to and use that to vote. So Estonia has sort of taken this route of being very open with how the technology works. Um, and, and I'm sure Mr. Helm and Mr. Voglide have just sort of haven't had the time to get acquainted with it, but I'm, I hope <laughs> that this is an opportunity for them to do so. Um, the cryptography works in sort of many layers when it comes to e-voting. So when we let's talk through from the perspective of a voter, so they will open the the application where they choose a candidate. They can create their own or they can use the one that has suddenly been created for them by government agencies. They find the candidate they choose and they, they um, seal their vote with their digital signature. At that moment, if we imagine the vote as a piece of paper, it goes into a blank envelope that simply has the, the name of who they voted for inside. And then that blank envelope goes into yet another bigger envelope that just on the top of it, you know, um, talking in sort of very simple terms here, will say that this is, for example, Stuart's vote. Hmm. So then, but it will say nothing else. And then the Stuart's vote will get transmitted to the Electoral Commission. Once the Electoral Commission closes the vote, they will check that the amount of people who e-voted and the number of votes, uh, the big envelopes that they have corresponds. They will check that if Stuart voted many times, that only his last vote is retained and the previous ones are deleted. And they will check whether Stuart voted in the uh, in the sort of physical analog uh, elections, and then they will disregard his e-vote completely. Um, so once that process is complete and they are satisfied that they have the correct number of of those large envelopes, they will take out the blank envelopes from inside those and disregard the sort of big envelopes that were still identifiable at that stage. And they will mix those up. So by the end of it, they will just have a bunch of blank envelopes with people's votes inside, not knowing where those votes originated from. And then to in order to open those blank envelopes, um, five, a, a number of um, uh, key pieces need to be assembled physically in the voting commission's office. Once those keys have been assembled, the blank envelopes can be opened and then all the sort of the, the votes will come out and we'll find out who got how many votes. So there's sort of these various layers of, of envelopes of cryptographic layers where we at some point the votes are identifiable without knowing who they voted for. And then once the necessary procedures are completed, um, we will find out who the votes went to without it being um, connected to who actually did the voting. Um, so these are sort of the, in, in very sort of simplistic terms, the sort of various layers that get applied to to e-voting. 
Okay, so um, when we talk about uh, blank envelopes, that indicates to me that there is there is no way of any uh, any party personalising the votes or uh, show, showing uh, exactly where the uh, votes came from. There's no there's no way of tracing IP addresses or anything like that. So it, in that case. How is how is it possible? And I, I'm just asking this as a as a layperson here. How is it possible that uh, after the e-voting um, e results came in, uh, we were able to see by district who voted for which party in terms of who voted for who gave the most votes to what party? Sure. At the, at the very beginning, when you complete the vote and your your vote goes into a blank envelope. As I said, it goes into an even bigger envelope that does have your name on it at that time. So at first, it's still possible to say that this person voted in this election and the Electoral Commission will see that information, but they will not know who they voted for. So in the same way, we think about a traditional voting station or sort of a school or kindergarten or wherever people go to vote. There is a list of people who have voted. They gave their signature against their name that they are going in to cast a vote. And that's that happens online as well. Um, so at that stage, it's still possible to know that this person voted in this district. But once um, once the pre necessary procedures around that are completed, that information can then be uh, disconnected from the actual vote itself. Okay, I I understand. And uh, so actually, this is about as secure um, as as any voting system can get. Uh, I'm I'm sure you would argue it's it's in many ways more secure than the supposedly trusted you know go down on polling day and vote on paper methods because that uh, there's there's almost less chance of tampering with a server than there is with with a with with, with a metal box, isn't there? That's quite right. And I think elections overall are all about risk management. So when, when we the, the risks around e-voting get a lot of scrutiny and, and for very good reasons, and, and we need to address all of them. There are risks connected to voting in a booth as well. You know, someone can still pressure to vote you, for you to vote in a certain way. There is a risk that someone can put extra votes in the, in, in, in the actual urn that votes go into. But there's sort of many other risks connected to all kinds of voting. And these risks always have to be managed. So when we think about e-voting, the, the risk management tools very often are around cryptography, they're around technology. Um, some are sort of more organizational, some are more procedural, some are more technical. And the same thing happens with physical or sort of analog collections. So we just we need to know what those risks are and we need to have procedures in place to manage them. And, and that applies on the internet as it does in the real world. Mm. Um, some of the other countries that e-vote, I mean, I, I think the most, uh, the, the largest and most famous by far is obviously Brazil uh, after the, uh, if we if we look at some of the other countries that uh, also use e-voting um, in 100% uh, of their elections as a possibility, um, you've got uh, DR Congo, uh, Namibia, according to the list I have, uh, Venezuela, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan as well, which uh, surprised me. I wasn't aware of that until I read, until I did some reading. Um, so, so some of these countries, obviously, Pakistan um, is um, an incredibly huge democracy. So is Brazil. Uh, Venezuela um, has has doubts over the level of democracy. We can say that, I think, um, although um, uh, elections are closely monitored. Um, Kyrgyzstan, I 
honestly could not tell you. Um, so the thing is that I think a lot of the people who, and I, I've, he I've heard this as well, um, a lot of the people who don't have any knowledge of how e-voting works say, well, um, if you look at a lot of them, they are not 100% democracies um, or they, they are places where you know, um, if you if you were not a professional election monitor, you might look at the election and, you know, suspect some foul play, as people have done with Venezuela in the past. Um, how do you assuage people that that we shouldn't doubt the system? Sure, and it's a completely fair enough question. I, I think it's it's important to see what other countries are doing and and to make sure that that whatever services you offer your citizens, they they meet sort of the demands and expectations of your people. Um, and I think in Estonia, we, we do still have a long way to go in, in how we communicate that and then how we explain how e-elections work. But at the heart of it is this matter around that the system as a whole, that e-voting in, in, in no country does e-voting happen in a vacuum. Um, it's a question of whether you have the democratic controls and systems in place to verify the results to make sure that sort of the, the system is fair and and works in Estonia we are achieving that through transparency so I, I don't know sort of the technical detail of all those other countries and and that's that's up for their officials and for international observers to figure out but in Estonia we've taken this route that we will be completely transparent with our people, that we will open up everything that we possibly can around the election system to international scrutiny, to auditors, to every single voter who wants to understand how the system works. Um, and that's sort of the, the path that Estonia has chosen in, in ensuring trust in, in our digital systems more broadly and e-voting as well. Um, it's... it's um, probably not as much the case in these other countries where you know the moment sort of even a smaller part of the system is is hidden or isn't available for for scrutiny that's where sort of the trust starts to get eroded um and and in estonia if there are still some people who who want to understand but haven't understood we just need to make sure that the message gets to them how the system actually works but but trust is built through transparency, and I think that's a really important lesson from Estonian e elections. Um, the uh, very narrow uh, court challenge, which was again thrown out by Paul Keres and Ekra, um, uh, was based around the idea that um, there was a discrepancy in how e-voting was regulated, as in uh, e-voting, as I understand it from the reading I've done, is solely regulated by the Estonian Election Commission at the moment. And they were arguing that um, uh, the Supreme Court uh, ruled um, prior to the 2019 elections that there, there had to be um, additional regulation from another body um, in addition to uh, the Election Commission. Now, that's um, and they were arguing that parliamentary time hadn't been allocated to that in the last session. Now, um, of course, that that was that was not time limited. Uh, it, the idea is that at some point in the future, time may be given it. But what do you make to the uh, reluctance? And I suspect this might be because of the conservative majority in the previous parliament to actually, um, you know, pass pass whatever bills are needed to be passed related to e-voting and just get those doubts out of the way. I think at the heart of the matter is that the previous Supreme Court judgment 
did not say that it, it made recommendations, but it did not say that there was anything wrong with the current system per se, that the, the, the trust and the security of the system is in no way undermined. And I think it's really important to remember that when the government that contained ECRA uh, entered office, they started a review process into e-elections and they, they looking at all the organizational matters, looking at the technical matters. And the report was finished under um, a new minister, Kaimar Garu, who was not a member of the ECRA party, mm. but there was still sort of the many of their members fed into that report. And despite, I'm, I'm sure they did a very proper job of looking for any fault they could find, not a single issue was found that would undermine the the results of e-voting, that would undermine the sort of confidence we have in that system. And I think sort of we 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 sort of I, I think it's completely reasonable to talk about um, improving the regulation if it's necessary to add more clarity. But I think sort of the the main to takeaway here is that there nothing has been found that would undermine the sanctity of elections in Estonia. And I think and if a ECRE led working group came to that conclusion, let's sort of trust their people and and say that they were right that time. If we if we move more widely now to uh, cybersecurity, which is your daily bread and butter, um, so how did Estonia become so renowned for cybersecurity? I, I understand that it was in the light of the two thousand and seven cyber attack and the fact that there were just so many so many things to be learned after that. But uh, um, can you maybe paint a picture of what Estonia's cybersecurity story has been since then? Um, you're right, Estonia. 2007 is is undoubtedly an important milestone in uh, Estonian cybersecurity development. But the the story itself goes back further. Like when we look at Estonia trying to rebuild its nation after the collapse of the Soviet Union, after breaking free, um, we had to start from scratch on many uh, government services. And being a at the time a relatively poor country, and 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 having quite a uh, highly skilled but small in numbers workforce that it made a lot of sense to start using latest technologies and, and become really quite reliant on technology very quickly in how we deliver government services. And and that sort of logic that cybersecurity has to be built into all of those systems as they're getting developed sort of dawned on people really quick. And I think we had a lot of good sort of political leadership at the time as well as you know, lots of engineering brilliance to to start those systems really really early. Um, when two thousand and seven rolled around and and um, Russia orchestrated sort of state led cyber attacks against Estonia, the country was well prepared. So if it that had happened against probably any other country at the time, the outcome would have been even worse than it was for us. But saying that the, the, the attacks were crude in nature, um, they, they just took services offline without tampering with any of the information inside. But even so, it was a really sort of awake, moment of awakening for many people around the world that we, that sort of the, what, the, uh, how vulnerable we might be to cyber attacks. And, and soon after, Estonia developed its first national cybersecurity policy, being one of the first countries in the world to do so. And that already sort of emphasized that cybersecurity needs to be, it's not the end in itself, it's not the technical matter for some IT folks down in the basement, that cybersecurity is a mindset that you need to apply to sort of every part of government services. It needs to be applied across um, 
uh, across business, across the public sector, that cybersecurity is sort of part of how everything has to work these days. And I think every cybersecurity strategy that has come after that has added more nuance to that point. But I think sort of 2007 really emphasized that cybersecurity is not just a technical matter, that it's a whole of society approach that needs to be part of everything we do in Estonia. Um, and so in, in that sense, absolutely a formative year. Um, one of the uh, discussions that I remember was um, around uh, it, it was it was at SICON many years ago about um, SICON being the international cybersecurity conference um, organized by NATO Cybersecurity Center in Estonia. And uh, it, it was around uh, the possibility of uh, cyber attack being an Article 5 issue for NATO. It uh, wasn't passed in the end, and um, I speculated at the time, and this this was never denied by anyone, that uh, it, it might have been because uh, if, if say, there were, I don't know, Russian if interference into, into a US election, for example, then uh, the, you, you don't really want um, that kind of thing becoming an Article 5 five issue because uh, that could that could lead very quickly um, to well potentially the pathway that we found ourselves in anyway I suppose but um, so do you think that NATO made a mistake by not making cyber warfare an article five issue at the time albeit that I must say, I was at high school at the time in 2007 so I'll just point that out that I was not part of those discussions but I think I think it was 2016 I was there so oh sorry yeah, the 2007 I was yeah. me uh, 2007 I was in high school um at the time um there was lots of expectation that Estonia would raise article 5 article 5 is not something that sort of NATO imposes on a member state member state has to make the request to its NATO allies that you know we want to meet under article 5 to discuss something Estonia chose not to do so, and, and, and from what I understand, it was very much because they considered the threshold to be too low, that we at the time already knew very well that cyber attacks, including from Russia, would be coming a lot. Um, and what we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment, cyber attacks will, will be part of every convention on conflict for the rest of the times. Uh, cyber warfare is just part of 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 sort of wider conflicts and and um, and it must be seen as such. And I think sort of cyber attacks very often should be seen as sort of what the what the effects are. So when you take down a website, is that an Article Five issue? No, it isn't. Do you attack a a some sort of a water treatment plant and or or some sort of dam and you flood an entire region and kill hundreds of people? Is that an Article Five issue? Yes. So I think that sort of it comes down to sort of what the effects are, and and every NATO member state has a sort of um, sovereign authority here to to decide on whether something is an Article Five issue for them or not. Um, you were uh, talked before we started recording about how it, it is very important for Estonia to be seen as a paragon paragon of internet freedom, and um, of, co of course that that comes with with um, virtues and also drawbacks uh, for for a country when it. Um, so, when we think about, uh, for example, the Russian media sphere and the fact that it is just so easy to get Russian broadcasting or to get uh, uh, Russian internet articles um, in in Estonia. Um, 
I can imagine that many other countries bordering Russia, uh, particularly as we go further south, might have, uh, uh, if it were in the situation Estonia were in now, taken the measure of uh, geo-blocking Russian uh, Russian internet or geo-blocking websites ending with .ru or, you know, maybe even taking um, Russian TV, as we talked about in the last episode of the podcast, off the basic cable package. But Estonia doesn't seem to want to do any of that. And it's almost as though um, we we are entering a gunfight and saying we're too good for guns. Um, it, it feels like that sometimes. Um, do, do you think that maybe... <sighs> Maybe sometimes the wish to be that leader in internet freedom, uh, while a well-placed notion, is something that holds Estonia back in terms of um, safeguarding national security from Russian influence. I think it's a... um, I strongly believe that in the long term, uh, more freedom is um, the best path forward. And the reason is that the the problem with Russian propaganda, for example, that is not a technical problem. The 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 way to combat that is not to just prevent our people from hearing that information. We need to treat it as a political issue, as a societal issue that it is. That people need to be um, have the, the the skills and have the awareness to actually, when they encounter Russian propaganda, to know to recognize it and to know how to deal with it that no state in its regulatory um, enthusiasm can stay ahead of, of the, the creativeness of Russian propaganda and the technical means of getting it out. That I think it's, it's, it's important. Russia today is not, sort of, is not readily available in Estonia, for example, and, and there are many measures have been taken. But I think at the same time, we can't let the technical solutions distract us from from the solutions which need to be a lot more complex to make our societies um, disinformation proof. And how how does a democracy uh, make itself disinformation proof? Because you know, um, I I've been thinking about this for a long time. We we are up against a country that has weaponized internet information. We're up against uh, um, a a country that has you know literal office blocks full of people writing internet troll posts in various languages. How do you combat that as a small, lean democracy with, um, um, with without the financial wherewithal to do that, or or the willingness to do it? It is incredibly difficult, and I think if if any country sort of finds a a solution that works, I think everyone is looking out for that. Um, But just it's uh, one thing that we can tell for certain at the moment is that just technical solutions that focus just on the technology do not work. That sort of the the any any response we have to disinformation and and in my current job at Independent Diplomat we've seen that in sort of various conflict situations around the world, be it Myanmar, be it Syria, that only technical solutions will never work. You cannot rely on, for example, Facebook to be competent enough or engaged enough to to delete posts that that we might consider not only offensive but dangerous or are actually be inciting violence, that, that sort of the technological solutions do not seem to be working. That we, and, and I think it's sort of Estonia is very well placed to come up with solutions to this, to, to find 
political opportunities to find ways to educate people in maybe a different ways that have been done so far. Um, I'm I'm sort of uh, I'm talking with sort of the privilege of not working in government anymore, so I can sort of hope that they will figure this out. But I think Estonia is is a very well placed to do so, and 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 I think sort of this commitment to freedom and the commitment to transparency is is at the heart of this and and i'm sort of i i hope that those values will 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 underpin any any sort of solutions that that they might come up with uh speaking of facebook and myanmar because i i'm, I'm aware of what happened there i and um as i understood it from the uh, uh articles i read at the time part of the problem is that uh, in countries such as myanmar quite often facebook is the internet so it 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 is a singular resource uh, there there are phones uh, being sold to africa right now with facebook as the browser for example um and how much is that sort of uh, uh, monopoly that companies such as Meta have in certain countries a problem when it comes to cybersecurity long term? About sort of 10, 15 years ago, sort of the hottest topic around sort of the Internet governance or how the Internet works was around net neutrality, that we should treat all Internet traffic the same. No service provider should or no sort of platform should get um, different treatment from others. That's flown out of the window in many countries now. And, and we see that particularly with Facebook and in many countries in Africa, phone plans are being sold that, you, you know, you get five gigabytes of mobile data, but everything on the Facebook platform is free of charge. So that's not included in your in your package. And that's just for free. And that that creates huge challenges. And, and technical once again, sort of the technical side of this is 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 almost irrelevant that the 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 repercussions are political. The repercussions are around how how information flows in communities. What happened in Myanmar was that sort of everyone already knew which physical room the Myanmar army was using to whip up um, anger and violence against the Rohingya population. And even so, despite everyone knowing and despite sort of the very loud pleas for help from the Rohingya community, nothing was done to take down the troll farm that the Myanmar army was running at the time. Um, and I, I think that sort of that that points to the fact that sort of just hoping that the technology companies handle this on their own or that we can come up with technical solutions to combat disinformation. Um, that's why they don't work. That what was missing at the time was effective international engagement. That there should have been some sort of international cooperation, some a way for the Rohingya population to to appeal to someone um, about what happened. And and I think that that's sort of where the it's something that the countries together have to figure out um, soon because we can see that Russia and China are offering a very different model of how the internet should work. Um, and if we don't come up with sort of like a positive response to that, the positive way for the future or how we can combat risks while still staying committed to human rights, to our democratic norms, I think we will lose a lot more than we, we can even expect at the moment. One one further question on cybersecurity, then I want to ask a question about independent diplomats. Um, so the question on cybersecurity is, uh, at the time when war, uh, when war in Ukraine broke out, when Russia invaded for the second time uh, last year, um, people were uh, saying things online such as, um, you know, you, you should make sure that uh, there is 
some some kind of emergency pack, maybe some kind of emergency generator, for example, because because the cyber security of uh, you know even even Estonia's electrical generation uh, network is is under threat. Pe- people were saying this, uh, you know, that that you should you should be ready in case there is a massive cyber attack, a la two thousand and seven. Um, now there was an attempted Russian cyber attack, and uh, the Estonian uh, internet, particularly Estonian Twitter, was hilarious for a couple of days, uh, talking about, well, yes, it took me thirty seconds to make a bank transfer, that kind of thing. Um, so that obviously was not the cyber attack that uh, Russia hoped it would be. But do people still need to be wary? Should we still be packing emergency boxes of things, uh, you know, and of uh, of um, torch lights and generators just in case something happens in the future? I think something. It, it's always possible that something happens. It might not come from Russia. It might be a catastrophic snowstorm. It might be something. Might always happen. So it's always. Uh, very sensible to take precautions, particularly the ones that the government has advised us to take. Um, as a you know a person who works in technology, it, it, it you, you know how vulnerable everything is, and and you you want to be prepared. But sort of I can I can say with sort of um, complete certainty that the Estonian government is doing everything they can to protect our data and protect our information and protect the critical infra- infrastructure in particular. One initiative that was launched during my time in the Estonian government was that of data embassies of key um, data uh, bases that the Estonian government holds are backed up uh, abroad. So if something catastrophic does happen on the territory of Estonia, and once again, I'll emphasize that could even be a bad snowstorm, you know, things can go very wrong. that sort of the the key information is protected, that that people can still access, have access to the services they would expect to have access to, so that I, I I doubt there are other governments out there who are more prepared than Estonia for anything catastrophic happening. So so that's that's sort of a, I have complete confidence in our officials and in how they're preparing us for for anything that could go wrong. Yeah, of course, um, and also I'm I'm. Actually reassured that there that there are um, uh, groups such as independent diplomat in the world right now because it, it seems to me that there are many governments uh, uh, cer- certainly many politicians who are probably as underinformed as um, as as I am or as the uh, person on Facebook or Twitter is and. Um, so sometimes it can be hard to find the expertise in your own country to man the civil servant, civil service in that case. So um, it's it's good that someone like independent diplomat and like yourself is able to go around the world and advise people. But maybe just tell people some of the work that independent diplomat is doing right now. Sure. So the concept of independent diplomat is that no diplomatic process should take place without uh, including the people who are affected by it. Um, we are an NGO that is manned by former government officials and diplomats and other international experts, and we lend our exp- expertise and, and our skills to um, countries and political groups who are committed to human rights, who are committed to democratic norms, and we help them through sort of the various diplomatic challenges they might be facing. So, for example, for a very long time, we have been working with the Republic of the Marshall Islands, who is a small atoll-based nation in the Pacific Ocean, who is very uh, seriously affected by climate change. 
and we've been lending them our expertise to help them be more successful in international climate negotiations to to push the world towards climate outcomes that that might actually you know save our planet one day we my work is focused on on cyber diplomacy so i work with with many countries including like countries like fiji vanuatu tonga helping them navigate sort of the very sort of complex cyber diplomacy negotiations that even countries like Estonia struggle to cover all of them, let alone when you have a population of maybe a hundred, couple of hundred thousand. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's about sort of increasing their role, giving them the, the, the information they need to be really successful in representing their own countries at these sort of various processes. And all of those countries you mentioned, the Marshall Islands, uh, Fiji, Tonga, they, they, they are they are countries that people are aware of, but they're but they're not countries that have a strong voice in international negotiations. So, um, what what would be um, sort of um, a um, a typical action plan that you would give a smaller nation if it were, for example, going to the UN General Assembly with with a particular goal? Because obviously, no one country can ever get all the goals at once. But how do you ensure that you get most of them? For us, it's really important that independent diplomats and, and us as individuals do not impose our sort of views on these countries. We, a, a person from Fiji is always best, is best placed to represent Fiji. They are best placed to know what is important for their country. And it is up to us to listen to what they need to, to do that. Um, whether it's sort of helping them strategize on sort of the various avenues that might be open for them, whether it is helping them draft talking points, whether it is arranging meetings with various diplomats for them, whatever it is that we can do to help them when there's only so many hours in a day for an elected official, for example. Um, that's what we will focus on. But I think that the really important thing is that sort of no one, particularly from the from the the west that the sort of well-to-do west should go to a developing country and say that this is what you should be doing to be successful that's that's why we have so much inequality in the world that's why we have such unjust policies coming out of the united nations that sort of at the, re the at the heart of the matter is that we should be more inclusive of voices that traditionally have not been heard as loudly in these forums and and if independent diplomats can sort of do their bit to help with that i think that that could lead to lots of good things. All right. Well, you've been very helpful and uh, fascinating in some of the details you've given us. Thank you, Carolina Anger, for uh, joining Christonia in this uh, special interview. Thank you for having me. <laughs>